John Bishop. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? You're in the middle of this mammoth tour at the moment. I am in the middle of this mammoth tour, but it's good. The tour's got bigger and bigger and longer and longer just because people wanted to come, so you can't complain about it. That's amazing. How come that happened? I've no idea myself. <laughs> That's the problem. We're all sat here looking at each other going, what happened? People started buying tickets in places where last year no one even knew I existed. And the last time I did a tour and I came to London, I did the uh, Leicester Square Theatre. The Leicester Square Theatre, which sounds lovely, and it has got a 400-seater venue, but I did downstairs in the dungeon with 40 seating, and 18 people came, of which 14 were my mates. And now you're doing... And now I'm doing the Hammersmith Apollo on this tour, and we've just booked Wembley Arena in for later in the year. Hey, get a load of that. This could be a rom-com all by itself, couldn't it? <laughs> I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. This is amazing. Presumably, one of the big factors originally was the Michael McIntyre. Yeah. You did a stormer on that. And so was it after that that things started shooting up? Definitely. I mean, the McIntyre show was fantastic. And I've just seen Michael this morning. And uh, every time I see him, I think, well done. Because to be fair, what happened with that slot, that slot happened because Jonathan Ross was off air. And because the BBC wanted to do something with Michael McIntyre, so it gave us all an opportunity. And for me, it just worked. And it worked as well, because when I walked on stage, I got heckled straight away because I was doing it in Manchester. And I just, I responded to the heckle. I thought, this bit isn't going to go in. So I wasn't bothered about it. It was quite relaxed, and it seemed to work in the edit. And, and then... so what I've done is I've got that heckler, and I've employed him now. <laughs> Any time I'm on telly, can you... in fact, he's going to come in the middle of this interview and heckle halfway through, just so I relax again. <laughs> and then you did live at the Apollo quite. Yeah, did live at the Apollo. And again, what was great about that is I was fortunate enough to get the long slot, because the way they do live at the Apollo, they have the host. And then they have uh, two people doing a show or they have a host and one person. And on the last series, the only people who did the long slot was me and Michael. So again, that just in the perception of people watching the shows, moved it on to another level. And people, to be fair, won't buy a ticket for... Well, I wouldn't buy a ticket for someone I'd never heard of. So it's an opportunity for you to do an advert, isn't it, really? How do you find playing the bigger venues? Great. Yeah? Anybody who says... uh, Comedy's lost when they go to a bigger venue. Hasn't done a gig in front of six people in a porter cabin. <laughs> did, you do, did you do that? I've done that more than once. I actually, the smallest gig I ever did, I'd done six people. That was an audience. The smallest gig I ever did was at the Edinburgh Festival where I actually turned up and, and the girl was promoting it. I said, how many's here? And she said, there's five people. I said, you are joking me. She said, there's five, and I've got to do an hour to five people. I said, look, Helen, I said, I can't, I can't do that. I said, just give them the money back. She said, we can't, only two have paid. <laughs> I said, so I actually went up to the five people. I said, look, there's five of you. Do you want to bother? And they said, yeah. So I said, all right, if you're prepared to do it, let's do it. So I said, right, what does everyone want to drink? Because I said to the sound man, we don't need a microphone. You've got a night off, so you can go to the bar. So I bought everyone a drink. 
and we sat down and had a chat for an hour. And it ended up at the end of it. I said, look, this has been great. Nice to do the show. Give us your emails, because I had this photograph. It's a long story as to why, but I had this photograph of a duck trying to have sex with a chicken. Very, very complicated story, but it was a real picture that I'd taken whilst riding a bicycle in Nepal. And people were saying, can we have, you know, of the five, 20% of my audience, which was two of them, said, can we have a copy? So I said, yeah, give us your emails. And one of them ended up was the head of comedy for Channel 5. No way. Yeah, so I'd done, within the audience of five people, I'd done it to one of the, at the time, one of the leading people in comedy and TV. Didn't give me a job. Obviously, he thought, he's no good. He'll never pull an audience in. But it was a good experience. But when you've done that and you've done gigs where you're standing on carpet in the corner of a pub, you know, I think sometimes you deserve to maybe enjoy the big venues. And when you're getting into theatres, it's a completely different thing. And now that we've moved up to arenas, you've just got to make the production and everything suit the show. So what do you change? I've certainly changed the speed of delivery. You've got to slow down because it sounds very technical. And it'll make me sound like I know more than I do, but I've been told this, is that acoustically the sound's hitting people at a different time. And so the laughter will come back at a different time, so you sometimes got to allow that to happen. And it's milliseconds, but because comedy's all about timing, if you jump in on something before it's actually reached people, then you're going to kill your own punchline. So do you notice that? Like when you first started doing big venues that you'd tell a joke and you kind of knee-jerkly would think, oh, this hasn't worked. And then you'd be like, oh, wait, hang on, it has. It's coming back, yeah! (laughs) Yeah, it's extremely subtle. It's not like there's a delay long enough. It's subtle. And I think from a performance point of view, you can actually change the way that you say a joke so that it appeals to a wider people who are sat in the upper circle. And yeah, you just got to consider it. But it's so subtle, the difference. You can't necessarily explain it until you're doing it. And how about doing this kind of so many shows? Does it feel like work? Does it feel like a job? No, this will never feel like a job. I mean, we were just talking to Flick, who sort of all my interviews and stuff, and I was saying, I'm a bit sick of talking about myself, because I am. But on the other side of things, this isn't a job. There's no way. And if you come to this and think it's a job, you should go and do a job. You only started doing this full time like four years ago, didn't three. you? I left my job. It would have been three years ago on the 12th of November. Your job was? Pharmaceutical sales marketing director of a pharmaceutical company. That's quite a fancy job. It sounds it, doesn't it? It, <laughs> sounds, it? Well, it was, to be fair. And the drug that I looked after was really good because it was an immunosuppressant, which meant that it suppressed your immune system after you had an organ transplant. So for liver, kidney, heart, lung transplants and latterly pancreas, although it was a little bit dodgy in that area because that was developing. This is turning into a different interview, I can tell in your eyes. But <laughs> no, I love this stuff. It, it was a leading product. You know, it was the kind of stuff that changed people's lives and it was good to do. Didn't you, am I right in thinking that before you did this, there was one point where you did a stint as a chef, like a long time ago. Who told you that? I'm just very good at research. Eh... Uh, I tell you who told you that the only person who's ever thought of as a chef was a lad called Rob, who was running a hamburger shop called the Rib Shack in Guernsey. And the reason that Rob thought I was a chef is because I told Rob I was a chef. I wasn't a chef. And I'd been working on a building site and my sister was out working in hotels in Guernsey. And I thought, well, I'll go over there because I got sacked off the building site because uh, I was a plasterer's mate which meant I used to mix the plaster for the, for the plasterers 
I'm going to have to put this in a really subtle way so that you... But what happens is I used to mix it. Now plaster is made to have this machine, but I used to mix it in a big steel bath. And anyone of a certain age will understand that was a hard craft. And then you put all the plaster on the hard. A plaster is made, did at least two plasterers. And you've got to get the plaster perfect because they moan like mad. They all think they're Michelangelo. They're just spreading stuff on a wall. But they got to get their consistency right. And I had this plasterer who I'd never worked with before who was moaning like hell. And I was about 17, something like that. He was moaning every time I put the hot down and scraped the plaster onto his palate. He was going, this is crap, there's no good, it's too dry, it's too wet, it's too... And there was a point during the day where he was getting on my nerves to the extent that I needed to go the loo. And I thought... I'm not going to the toilets. I'm going in the plaster. So we went in the plaster and I delivered it to him on the odd inside the plaster so he didn't know. So when he scraped it up, it went and it went all over his face. So he came after me, he came after me with the spades and the sledgehammer. And we had a bit of a scuffle and I got sacked. And uh, But there's a, bil- there's a building in Runcorn now that's got more of me in than anyone else. And that's a true story. So because I lost the job, my sister was in Guernsey and she said, come over here. So I got a job working in a hotel washing dishes. And I'd seen this advert in the window of a hamburger shop saying chef wanted. So I went in and said I was the breakfast chef at the hotel where I was washing the dishes. So he gave me a job. Now this place was called the Rib Shack and it was the place where everyone went when they were drunk for a kebab on the way home. And it was apparent on the first night that I wasn't a chef. I was terrible. I was burning everything. But what I was good at was dealing with the drunks, getting the money off them and throwing them out when they were getting a bit leery. And so the fella said to me, look, you are the worst chef I have ever seen in my life, but you can handle the drunks, so I'll give you a job. And then I ended up being the manager of the Rib Shack and Chicken George, which is two big shops. Chicken George was, uh, this is the premier fast food takeaway in Guernsey in the late 80s. Anyone who'd been there would have seen me in the chicken mobile, which was a red Citroen van with Chicken George on the side and yellow wheels. I was living the dream of, you know, I'd come from a plasterer's mate to being Chicken George. You don't get that in any story, do you? I've got to put this in a book. <laughs> you should. So you went, we're doing the sales job. And you'd started doing comedy, like, years before you gave up the job, though. Yeah, yeah, I did. I started, because I didn't think I could make a living out of comedy. Well, in fact, I never even thought I'd do comedy. I, I had no plans to do it, and I started it, and I kept on getting asked to do it, and I kept on thinking, well, it's all right, but, you know, you do a gig and you're getting 40 quid, that's not going to make a living, is it? But also, you did really well. You got into the finals of all the, like, you know, the so you think you're funny, and Daily Telegraph, and BBC New Comedy, and then you won the City Life Comedian of the Year, which is a huge thing, people. Peter Kay's won it, Jason Manford, Dave Spikey, loads of amazing people. Mm. Did you not at that point think, oh, maybe I should? You're not going to believe me answers to this. I honestly didn't know who any of them were. Really? No. How did I, you get into stand-up then if you didn't know anything about stand-up? I, I split up my wife. I split up with my wife because I had kids. I had the kids every weekend because of the nature of my job. I couldn't say what nights I'd have them in the week, so I'd have them every Friday to Monday. And then on a Monday, I was just depressed. And I used to do what men do when they're depressed and get drunk. And then one of my mates said, you've got to stop getting drunk and do something else. So I thought, well, that's a good idea. And so I was looking for something I could do. But when you're a bloke, your mates aren't, aren't like girl mates. Girl mates hug each other and look after each other. And 
you know, get baths together and stuff. Like that. What they do in the films, I've seen. But, <laughs> but bloke mates are sort of, you know, you've you, you got to do something. You go, all right, well, let's do something together. Let's do something on a Monday night. And they go, I've got darts on a Monday night, so I'm not about. So I ended up on a Monday in Manchester on my own looking for something to do. And I saw a comedy club and I thought, I'll go in because I'd been to the comedy store in London on a works do. And I'd been to this same club in Manchester called the Frog and Bucket once on a, a lad's uh, 21st birthday, about four or five years before. And they were the only two experiences I had of comedy, which meant that my experience of comedy was a full weekend night at a comedy club with brilliant comedians on. And I walked up and it was a Monday, so the guy said it's open mic night and it's £4 to get in, but it's free if you put your name down. And I thought, put my name down for what? He said, it's an open mic. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, that means you get up. And I thought, well, I'm getting divorced. That's £4 she's not getting. So I put my name down, thinking there's going to be two or 300 people in there. And there were seven people, literally seven, five have put their name down. And I was just thinking, this is... Re- I was waiting. When the compere, who was Mick Ferry, came on stage, I thought, surely this, th- there must be a coach coming or something. This isn't it. And I got called out second. And if it had been called out third, I'd have probably left by then. I got called out second after a fella doing chicken impressions. No kidding, honestly. Because there was people that... You'll know if you go to an open mic night, there's people there who aren't allowed to use a knife and fork. There's proper care in the community, nutters there. And this fellow was on the stage with a rubber glove on his head, going, bah, 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 bah. and he was saying, here's the chicken, telling a joke. Bah, 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 bah. Why does the fellow cross the road? See, it's not the chicken cross the road, it's the man. Hey! And I was thinking, oh my God. And then my name got called out. Did you know what you were going to talk about? No, because I was expecting to like be number 60 on the list. I was thinking, I'll, I'll, I'll wait, and if it's rubbish, I'll leave. So at the time... There was one thing in the news, and I'd said it to me mate in the afternoon, and he laughed. So I tried it again, and it was, if people will remember, there was a, a fuel dispute with the French. And so all the English lorry drivers that had gone over weren't able to get back because the French farmers were blockading the roads so that the traffic across Europe was getting stopped. And that was the big news item of the day. So I walked on stage, said, obviously, you've all seen what the French are doing, blocking the roads so the lorry drivers can't get home. Wouldn't it have been handy if they'd have done that in 1939 with the Germans and saved us all a lot of hassle? That was me one joke. And I said that, and then I just stood there, and then I went, I'm getting divorced, you know. And then I just started talking about getting divorced. And that was it. I was meant to do seven minutes. I think I did 35. Not all of it funny, obviously, but if you've been married for eight years and someone says you can talk without interruption, you do. So I just carried on gabbing. And then one thing just went from another and the fella who was running the place said, look, you know, that was all a bit odd, but you were better than the chicken. So why don't you come back next week? And that's what happened. That's literally what happened. I thought, right, well, next week I went back and it gave me a reason to not do anything on the Monday to not feel too depressed. And I went back and then I started getting invited back to weekends and the crazy thing is and anyone who knows about comedy will understand how ignorant i was of it i did that open spot in october i got asked to do my first headline spot in january i thought that was normal i thought that's how you did it. i did my first headline spot and then i didn't do a gig then for about four months because i just thought i literally had no perception 
that there was a potential career or an industry behind it. I had no mates who were comedians and I had no time to make mates with comedians because I was either with my kids or I was at work. Did you not, when you won the, the City Life Comedian of the Year, when you got into the finals of all these things, didn't you have like agency type people getting in touch and going, hey, give up your job and come and do comedy? Uh, yeah, and they all talk like that as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. But again, I came down to London and I did sign up with one agent off the curb. They were a really good agents and, you know, they look after Michael McIntyre, Lee Evans, Jonathan Ross, Jack Day, Alan Carr, you know, the list is endless. But I came across the brick wall of the fact that they were trying to present me with opportunities and I couldn't take them up. Like, they got me doing the warm-up for the Jonathan Ross show. Now, that's a brilliant gig because all tele-executives in the land at some point will watch a show at least from the gallery of Jonathan Ross. So they will see the warm-up. And, you know, and again, Alan and people like that have all done it and it's helped. And I did the series and then I got asked to do the next series. And I kept on saying, well, it's a Thursday night and I've got a sales meeting on Friday and I just can't be in two places at once. So I kept on turning them down. And, you know, you're saying, well, Robbie Williams is on. I'm going, I know, yeah, but I haven't done my graphs for tomorrow. I, you know, I've got a presentation tomorrow on what's happening in the marketplace. I can't be bothered coming down. And that's literally how daft I was. And so uh, when it came to uh, leaving the job, I just had an honest conversation with them because I'd reached a point with the agent where they tried to do things for me and I wasn't able to commit to it. And we were just plodding along. It was like being married without having sex. I just said, you know, neither of us are excited about each other anymore. So I left my job and left me agents in the same week. Why did you leave your job? What was the crunch point? Um, the truth is, a lot of people who I'd started with, I could see that they were having success and I could see that there was a potential career. And I'd left me... I, I'd, I got into comedy because I'd split up my wife. And so I left me job because through comedy, we got back together and it, I was in danger of splitting up again because I was getting pulled very, very much on the job because I had the responsibilities I had with the job and and I couldn't not do the comedy because it had been the only thing that had been there when I had nothing else. And so I wasn't prepared to not do the comedy. And I, I obviously had to make a living. And the one thing that was flexible between the two was the family and that was the thing that was getting squeezed. and. I just thought, just not worth it. So I gave up the job. And so how was it at first when you... Because you had, you know, family and a mortgage and... Were you scared? It was odd because by that time, the kids had got used to a sort of standard of living. So we had to sit them down and say, look, lads, you know, things might change. And he said, why? So I'm going to lose... I'm going to leave my job. I said, so you might lose things. You You may lose the holidays. You may lose some presents at Christmas because I won't have as much money. We're going to lose the company car and stuff. And he said, why? What are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a comedian. He said, you're not funny. To be honest, you're not my demographic. Uh, And they've actually adjusted to it. And yeah, it was a little bit, but I just thought I'd rather try it and lose than either lose them or, or blame them for me not trying it. Now how are they about it? Because they're teenagers, aren't they? Yeah. Do they think it's cool? They think it's probably the most embarrassing thing on the planet. Can you imagine your dad being on telly trying to be funny? You can't imagine anything worse, can you? I'm probably 
there's probably dad dancers who've got more street cred with their kid than me. Aren't their friends impressed by it? If they are, they don't tell me, do they? How am I going to know? They're not going to go, hey, dad, you know what I mean? That was really funny. They just go, oh, no, 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 no. So obviously it did go well. You had a mental year last year. As well as this, we talked about Michael McIntyre and stuff, but you started doing acting. Mm. How did that come about? Not a clue. <laughs> Honestly, the only thing I'd done in the past was the panto with Darren Day and Chesley Oaks. And then all of a sudden I got asked to do something in Skins, which went well. So you play the dad of Kate and Emily. Yeah, and Red. Red's right. my son. Red's his real name. Yeah, that's going to be testing because my first screen kiss is coming up. <gasps> And me lads don't know it. And I just think it's going to be a disaster when they go to school and say, So your dad's snogging. Who are you snogging? Me wife, Ronnie it's, Anacona. Right. You know, Ronnie's, you know, if you're giving a gig yeah, and the gig yeah. is snog Ronnie Anacona, you're going to go, I'll do that. Yeah, that's all right. But also, you're going to be in a movie. Mmm. Mmm. Yeah, and then I got cast in this film called Ruth Irish, which Ken Loach is making, which is made now. It'll be out in, in the autumn. What's it about? It's a very serious film because it's about two best friends from Liverpool and it's a three-way relationship between me, my girlfriend and my best mate. So my girlfriend's played by Andrea Lowe and my best mate's played by Mark Womack. And um, the film is basically about me, but I'm dead. And that was one of the most... Ken Lowe cast me in it. He said, it's a three-way relationship. Then he phoned me up. He said, I've just got to tell you, you're dead. I said, well, what does that mean, Kenny? So I'm disappointed because we'd like you in the film. Well, I said, not as disappointed as me. So I'm in it, in flashback. And the way it works, and I'm looking forward to seeing it because the way he films, you don't see the script until the end. You get like a page a day. Oh, really? So no one knew I was dead. I knew I was dead, but they didn't know I <gasps> no. was dead. Oh so they God. got told, they were waiting to do scenes with me. And then he walked in, he said, no, those scenes have changed. These are your clothes for the day. You're going to a funeral. And so the tears were proper tears and all this stuff. And from that point, I didn't speak to him until the end of the film either. Didn't you? No. Because I was dead. Wow. I was staggering, staggering. And it, so the film itself, when I say it's about the relationship, it's because I play an ex-paratrooper. Mark plays an ex-paratrooper SAS man who goes to Iraq and is working on private security. And the film's called Ruth Iris because the road that comes out of the green zone in Baghdad is called Root Irish. And I get convinced by Fergus's character to go over and work on private security. And that's when things go horribly wrong and then one thing leads to another. And it's a thriller. And I've seen some little rushes of it. And I think it, it'll be, well, it's Ken Loach. It's going yeah. to be very hard. It. But he's funny as well, Ken Loach, as well. Oh, Amongst the bleakness. Oh, very much so. He's a very, very funny fella. And just a fascinating just unbelievable and the energy of him. We went out to Jordan to film the scenes that were meant to be in Iraq. You know this film Hurt Locker, we were in the same place that they filmed. And so you're in this part of uh, Jordan, you're filming as if it's Baghdad after the war. So you can imagine it's not the best looking place because that's what it's like this place. And the energy he's got, you know, we're in the desert and he's, he's in his seventies and he's the first up and the last to bed and he's just, so he does everything so meticulously. He's a staggering, staggering personality. And just an honour to be stood next to someone whose work you've admired. When's that going to be out? 
I think having a toss up between which film festival it's going to go in. So it's either going to go into Venice or Toronto, which means at the end of August or the beginning of September. Okay. Listen to me, Venice or Toronto. <laughs> You know, is you there, can't, is you... there always the bit of you, that either the salesman or, you know, the fake chef bouncer who's going, how did this happen? Oh, <laughs> I'm playing Wembley. There's not a day that goes past that I don't think that. And that's that's the joy of it. There's, I was speaking to someone recently. In fact, I tell you, I, I'm doing this thing with, you know, Sky that you were talking about with James Corden. This is a panel show. The, the panel you? show, yeah. And on the show, Jamie Redknapp's on the show. He's the team captain. I'm with Jamie every week. And uh, I got asked to do the Jonathan Ross show, so I, I was thinking I've been asked to do the jo- so I've got to I've got to get some clothes. So my agent told me to get some clothes because this is so stupid. Oh, I can't turn up in jeans. So she said you've got to look yeah for Jonathan Ross. And I got these shoes, tan shoes. I've never worn tan shoes in my life. And I, and so I'm at, I'm at the studio and I've got these shoes. I said to Jamie, what do you think of my new shoes? He said, they're minging. He said, you can't wear them. I said, you don't think so? I said, I got told they were all the rage down here. He said, they're not, you're not wearing them. So this girl who was doing the wardrobe of the show says, right, say, what size are you? We'll get some stuff sent to your hotel for tonight. So this was the night before it was meant to happen. I said, what do you mean get it sent over? She said, get, get some stuff. And she measured me off. She said, I turned up in my hotel after recording the panel show. Turned up in my hotel at 10 o'clock and the receptionist has got bags and there's shoes in the bags and the shirts and there's ties and there's... And I'm like, and I got on the phone to Jamie. I said, Jamie, I said, I've just turned, there's all this gear at the hotel. And he just said, welcome to my world. He said, he said, you don't have to go to TK Maxx now and open all the jumpers to find one that fits. <laughs> I said, like, you've ever done that, Jamie? But, you know... <laughs> So things like that, you think that's mental. That is just mental that somebody is able. And the way it worked is that they send stuff over from this really posh shop. And if you like it, you keep it. What you don't like goes back. And I'm thinking, they've not met me. If they, they've, they, if they heard me speak and they're going to send me stuff and say, look, if you don't like it, just send it back. Oh, right, yeah, sure. So I've got loads of gear now. <laughs> Listen, talking of mental things, <laughs> another thing that happened last year was the football thing. Childhood Dream, you played at Anfield. I did play at Anfield. That's huge. I know. I was man of the match. All right, I wasn't man of the match, but... <laughs> what no, happened? I got a phone call to ask if I would play in a charity game at Anfield. Kenny Daglish actually phoned me up and said, would you play? I know, I know, I know. I phoned my dad up and said, Kenny Daglish just phoned me up. He said, no, he hasn't. Put the phone down. That's, that's exactly how it happened. And I phoned him, I said, he has. He said, no, he hasn't. He said, listen, John, just settle down a bit. You're getting carried away with this showbiz life. He said, how oh, do you know it was Kenny Daglish? I said, because he said it was Kenny Daglish. He said, because you understand him. I said, well, no. He said, well, it might have been him then. <laughs> and and I got asked to play and I turned up. And, if, and it doesn't matter who you support. It doesn't matter what, what you, whether you're into football or you know, if you play tennis at Wimbledon or something. It was just that I did something that I wanted to do since I was a child. And... As I walked off the pitch, because it was all part of the Hillsborough commemoration, so there was an, an emotional side to it as well. But as I walked off the pitch, I thought, you know what, that's it now. Everything after this day is a bonus. Every day, you know, I'm like, I'm like one of those, you know, one of those people that you see on the telly doing a charity run, going, yeah, every day is a special day. Every day is a bonus. But that's what it felt like. I thought, nothing's going to beat this. Nothing. Um. There's other stuff I want to ask you about, but I'm aware that we're pushed for time because I know you want to go to the cinema. I'll tell you why. 
because I just want to do something that is just relaxing. So I'm going to have a girly moment. We were talking before, I'm going to go and see a, a rom-com on me all with a pack of popcorns. <laughs> That's what you think. I we're out in the say... corner from Soho, everyone. All the lads know what I mean by that. Yeah, I'm going to the cinema to see a rom-com. Yeah. Her name's Andrea. <laughs> okay, all the things that I can't ask you about. I mean, you got nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award this year, which is another huge thing. You've done various other telly bits. Mock the Week, 8 Up 10 Cats. You also did... Celebrity Mastermind. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Celebrity Mastermind. No. <laughs> Please. No. You have all the things to bring up. Why do you bring this up? You know, you'll, you'll understand yeah. in a minute. I'll explain No, I'll tell minute. you why I did it. Uh, because I got asked to do it. And at first I said no. And then they phoned up and said, look, it's for charity. And I said, well, I still don't want to do it. Because I don't want to do anything with the title Celebrity. And I'm not into all that malarkey. And, uh, and, and also, I don't mastermind. I don't know anything. And then they phoned up and said it's for charity and they give a really good fee for charity. And there was an advert on the television at the time that they phoned up for the Smile Train, which is a great charity which corrects cleft palates in children. And uh, the kids are looking at me through the telly while the producer's saying, why don't you do it? We'll give thousands of pounds to charity. And I'm like, oh, and the kids are going, look at this. And I'm going, and they're going, look at that. And I go, oh, what? Right then I said, I'll do it. And he said, what's the charity? I said, the Smile Train. And then she said, what's your specialist subject? As the dollar days I've been on. And she genuinely said, I'll phone you back in 10 minutes. <laughs> like she was checking it out and then came back and said, you can't have that. I said, why has <laughs> someone else had it? She said, no, no one's had all the days John Bishop's been on. So uh, I, she said, what else? And I said, Liverpool Football Club. She said, you can't have that. She said, what other subject? And then someone, I don't even think it was me, but I heard the voice say, the Irish potato famine. And I just went, oh God. And so she said, yeah, and I know nothing about the Irish potato famine, as anyone who saw the show found out. John, we like to make dreams come true on Marsha Means. For one afternoon only. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to come out in a rush. We're going to do Celebrity Mastermind with the specialist subject, Holidays You've Been On. Oh. Are you this ready? This will be interesting. See how good your research is. OK, your name is? John Bishop. Your profession? Comedian. And your specialist subject? Holidays I've been on. Your time starts now. Which European airport do you claim makes you feel like Jason Bourne? Jason Bourne. Oh, um, Geneva. That's correct. In which North African country did you recently have a package holiday? Egypt. Correct. Whilst there, the other hotel guests would reserve sunbeds using what item of clothing? Flip-flop. Correct. In summer 2008, you and five friends went to Germany to watch which sporting event? The World Cup. That's correct. What was your mode of transport? A van. That is correct, a transit van. <laughs> On your return journey, your party missed the ferry. Why was this? Because we, instead of going to the ferry port, we went to the office of the ferry firm in the middle of Belgium where there was no water. That is correct. To which romantic city did you recently take your wife? But are you stalking me? <laughs> Paris. Correct. During the journey, I've started so I'll finish. During the journey, you managed to lose an item at Manchester Airport. What was it? My virginity. <laughs> <laughs> an item at Manchester Airport. What did I lose at Manchester Airport? I can't remember what was it. You lost a notebook. Oh, I lost my notebook. How did you know that? I did lose my notebook and somebody thought, hey, you know what, Mark? this has been the scariest interview I've ever done. But do you know what? You'd still got seven out of eight, John, and we don't have a cut glass bowl, but I do have a plastic cup <laughs> on which it says, John Bishop won Celebrity Mastermind 
February 2010. I, I will have that because it does say in felt, so that'll do. But I also need to now get on to the police because I feel <laughs> I feel you're living in my garden to know that kind of stuff. So, Sean, you, uh, the dates for your November tour, which is going to be a new show, have gone up on sale already. Yeah. Well, and today. obviously you're on tour at the moment. There's going to be a DVD, new Edinburgh show and stuff, but all the information for everything is on your website, which is... JohnBishopOnline.com John, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, and... and and somebody tag her somebody I want to know where she is all the time because those questions scared me some of that stuff I've even forgot myself <laughs> thanks Mark thanks so much for listening if you like that you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy so asking them things like what's your writing process how do you find your voice what do you think about touring how do you deal with hecklers we interviewed 42 stand-ups including Eddie Izzard Sarah Millican Phil Jupiter Stuart Lee Mark Maron it's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing if you want to find out more go to yes yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic